Well, friends, it's good to be here this morning. See some old faces and some new faces, some new friends. It's great to be able to fill in for your pastor as he enjoys some vacation. So let him have some vacation. That's my advice. Be good for him and good for the church. But this morning we're going to look at the very end of the book of Genesis. Find the passage for you, printed for you in your bulletin. Going to begin just with a few verses at the end of, of chapter 49, and then read into 50. I'm not going to read this whole text for you right now. We'll come back to it later. I think right now we're just going to read through verse 14, that first long paragraph. But this is God's word, and I want to read it for you now. It says, "The this is uh, Jacob speaking." Then Jacob commanded them, that's his family, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, at the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought from the field with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field of the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Pharaoh answered Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was called Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre which Abraham brought with the f- bought with the field from Ephrath the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. I'll stop there. This is the reading of God's word. I will pray, ask that the Lord would bless its reading. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking to us, even with these customs and these instructions from so many thousand years ago we may learn about the hope that you've given us of eternal life and glory, that you've showed us the way through your Son. 
that we may have faith in you and forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if there are many sports fans in the room. I was uh, clicking through uh, ESPN.com yesterday and saw news about the Women's World Cup. I admit I'm not a soccer fan, but I saw they were entering the knockout stage of the round of 16. And I, I've told this before. My family's probably heard me tired of me saying this, but soccer, every, every few years the World Cup comes up and they say this is the year that soccer is going to make it big in America. And every two years they're wrong. Uh, because sports, you know, take a while for for new sports to arise in popularity and old sports to wane. I mean, for a couple decades now, American football has been uh, the biggest, most popular sport in America. And for a long time before that, it was baseball. Still my favorite sport. hundred years ago, as baseball was just becoming most popular, it was replacing, well, not replacing, but replacing as the most popular sport in America, boxing. And boxing's closed second. Horse racing. These sports are still around, but maybe not the popularity that they have uh, 100 years ago. The, the heavyweight champion of the world over 100 years ago was named Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was from Galveston, Texas. He was known as the Galveston Giant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world from 1908 to 1915. And the, and the country that day was... Riven, born and torn in two by the fact that the heavyweight champion of the world was a black man. Nothing wrong with the heavyweight champion of the world being a black man. But some people didn't like that. So they thought, we, 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 need, someone, we need someone to take his place. And so a writer coined this phrase, great white hope. Amer America needed a great white hope to knock, literally, Jack Johnson out of the ring and have a, have a new heavyweight champion. And the reason I give this example to you of, of hope, haha, great white hope, is to show you how ridiculous it is, the, pla the places that we often put our hope. Now, hopefully most of our hopes are, aren't, well, racist. <laughs> but in this world, we have hopes that aren't going to satisfy us. Some of us put our hopes in politicians. We think if I just get the right politician in place and everything will go right and uh, this, uh, my, my city, my country, my state will, will turn a corner and things will be wonderful. Or we have this hope that if I just get into uh, the right job and then everything will go right. If I just find the right man or woman to love me, then, then life will be problem free from then on forward. If I just, if the, if the lottery numbers that I've been playing for decades finally hit, then my, my life will be happy and satisfied and no more problems. And we put our hopes in these things that don't satisfy. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we want to make sure we elect good politicians. We want to make sure we, we find a, a mate who, who loves us and loves the Lord. We want to make sure, we, if we can, we find a job that is satisfying, that pays the bills. But friends, if you're looking in these earthly things for, for eternal satisfaction, and hope and meaning and purpose, you're going to be disappointed. Just as 100 years ago, the boxing nababs were disappointed that their great white hope never knocked Jack Johnson off the throne. Yeah, someone else did. But guess what? That heavyweight champion 
was defeated by someone else. But that heavyweight champion was defeated by someone else. And today I couldn't even tell you who the heavyweight champion of the world is. But in this text, at the end of the first book of the Bible, we see these great people of faith. The, the great we call them the patriarchs, the father of the faith, fathers of the faith, like Jacob and Joseph. We see that they have a hope that will last for all eternity. And that's the hope I want to share with you this morning. Printed for your bulletin are three points. They're in, they're in the order that I saw them in the text, but we're going to actually look at first point one, then point three, then point two. But we're going to begin with a place of hope from these verses that we just tread. The place of this hope that I want to share with you. You notice that as Jacob is dying, there is a, a theme, a topic that seems to dominate the discussion of Jacob's death. What was it? It was his burial, wasn't it? Where he was going to be buried, very specific instructions, and then the carrying out of these instructions. You see that? Verses 29 to 32, those, those last few verses of the previous chapter, he gave instructions about where I want to be buried. You may not remember the story if you've read it before, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 23, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, had a problem. He had been promised the entire promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, as we call it. But at that point in time, he owned none of it. Yet his wife died and he needed a place to bury her. So he goes to the people mentioned here, Ephraim the Hittite, the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, kind of like giving you the, the coordinate so he could go and find this place. And Abraham bought this cave at this burial place for his wife. And as we saw later, he was, himself was buried there. His children were buried there. Well, one of his children was buried there. And now Jacob was to be buried there as well. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? Remember what I said. Abraham was promised all of the promised land. In, in Genesis chapter 13, the Lord comes to him and says, Lift up your eyes. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. So Abraham had this promise that he would have an eternal promised land for him and for his offspring. But at the point of his and his wife's death, all they have is this little cave. But to demonstrate his faith and the promise that God one day give him this land, he goes and he buys this cave. He buys this place a burial ground. Now why is, that, why is that a sign of Abraham's hope? Well, think about it. It's a land surrounded by Canaanites. If Abraham didn't believe that the Lord would someday give him his rest of this promise, why would he go and buy a cave in a, in, in a land surrounded by his enemies? All they'd have to do is wait for Abraham and his family to, to you know, wither away and they take that land right back. Who knows what they would do to the tomb and to the grave. But if Abraham believed that this was just like a, a down payment, this was just like an, an appetizer, this was just the, the very first fruit of a promise that would blossom into a glorious land of hope for his people, then he said, oh yeah, this is a place that it is worth 
buying. This, this is a place worth entrusting my bones and the bones of my wife and of my offspring. And now Jacob, two generations later, has this same hope. But remember something. Jacob is in Egypt. If there was one place in the ancient East, Near East that knew how to do tombs, that knew how to do burial places, that knew how to, how to go you know, all in on, on a nice place to bury yourself, it was Egypt. Think of the pyramids. Well, what were the pyramids? Really, 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 really fancy cave tombs. Think of King Tut's tomb when that was discovered 100 years ago and all the, all the treasures that were pulled out that you can go see in a museum. It's obviously Jacob and his family are, are well beloved in Egypt. They could have had a glorious tomb on the banks of the Nile River. But Jacob says, no. My hope is in the promised land. My hope is in this land. Even after I die, I have hope in this land. We'll see what that means for us in a minute. But as the text goes on, we see them carrying out his instructions, don't we? So we get into chapter 50, and especially there, what are they, verses 5 to 19 or so. This large group goes to bury Jacob. Of course, it's because the Egyptians are so uh, respectful and grateful of his son, Joseph. Remember, Joseph is the one who came to Egypt as a slave and uh, through the Lord's working brought him up uh, to be uh, just at the right place to, to help Egypt survive this awful famine. Made the, the second in command over all of Egypt. So out of respect for this man and his family, they, they go when his father is to be buried, uh, carrying him back to the promised land. It, it's so surprising that even the locals are like, what's going on in verse 11? They, they see all this mourning. This is, this is grievous mourning. They say the Egyptians, boy, they're really pulling their hair out here with this grieving over this man who's being buried here. They probably think, what's the deal? What, what are all these rich Egyptians doing in this backwater? I mean, Atad, that's not exactly a, a known city to many of us. I don't even know where it is, except that it's beyond the Jordan. They stopped on the east side of the Jordan to, to mourn for a while before they crossed over into the promised land. What is the deal, they may have said? That's a good question. What is the deal? So think about what we've seen. Jacob, even in death, had a hope of a promised land in which he was going to be. Friends, is that your hope? Is that your hope that, that even in death you have a, a promised land in which you will find yourself for all eternity? We often call it heaven, don't we? Heaven's a good word. Heaven's a biblical word. But the thing about the Bible is when you, when you read to the end of the book, you see heaven and earth joining together. You see, when, when the Lord gave people in Israel hope of a promised land, even the entire land of Israel was only part of that appetizer was only part of that down payment was only part of that first fruits because later the Lord reveals that it's not just Israel 
So there's a little stretch of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea that will be the, the, the place of, of his people's eternal dwelling. But the entire earth will be heaven, as it were. The entire earth is the promised land of God that even when you die, you have a hope of life on earth. Not floating in the clouds somewhere, but not rotting in a grave either. You have a hope of actual life in this promised land. And we actually, we actually see that as we keep going in this text when we get to the bones of another man who is dying. We, we skip a few years, but when we begin picking up in, in verses 15, I'll start reading here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And here's where we skip a few years. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin. So remember what I just said. Our hope is not merely that there will be a promised eternal land one day that that is the entire new heavens and the new earth that that Jesus will usher in when he returns but that we physically will have eternal life in that place that that is our hope and we see this with Joseph's attention that he gives to his own bones ever wonder why Christians have always buried bodies. Why Christians have always been ones who don't incinerate and throw away their bodies, but keep them, give them such care, give them such concern. Because we know that God has a future plan for our bodies. God has a future plan for us as a physical being. Joseph clearly knows that he's going to die. That's what he says. He says, I'd love to get back to the promised land, but it's clearly not going to happen. But he says, my bones are going to make it. (laughs) He says, my bones are going to make it to glory. My my body's going to be there. He places great emphasis, great value on his bones, again, even though he's dead. (laughs) Even though he, he could have the most fantastic of burials in Egypt. I mean, think about this. Israel is like 300 years away from life 
back of the promised land. His ancestors, his, sorry, his descendants are going to have to keep track of this coffin for centuries. Uh, think about the Exodus. They had to leave in a hurry. They, they had to make their way through the Red Sea. They had to wander 40 years in the wilderness dragging this coffin around. But they did. Because they knew of the hope that Joseph had. That although he died, his life was not over. That there was a physical future yet awaiting him in the promised land. The New Testament, when it considers Joseph's instructions, says that this was an act of faith. That he believed God's promises. That he knew that his existence was going somewhere. That God would make all that he had promised happen. In fact, when the book of Hebrews summarizes Joseph's life, this is the main sign of his faith. Look, Listen to Hebrews 11. By, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's all Hebrews says about him. Of all the amazing things that Joseph did in his life, uh, the way in which Hebrews laser-like focus is on his instruction for his bones in the Exodus. Because it had this focus on eternality, on the future, on the life that you and I will have for all eternity if we have that same faith. If we have that same faith. I'll, I'll speak more about that faith in a minute. But I hope you can see with these, these elaborate burials, these elaborate instructions, the, the, the text as, as Genesis ends, as this fundamental book of the first book of the Bible ends, such stress it gives to the, the, the physical future of life and the eternal promised land. Genesis ends where, where all scripture ends with us awaiting something. With us awaiting that eternal life in the promised land. Joseph didn't get it. Jacob didn't get it. He, he died physically before that happened. It doesn't mean that they didn't mourn, does it? No. They understood that, that death was the enemy. They, uh, they understood the great sadness that involves when we're temporarily separated from our souls and our bodies. They understood the pain of death. They didn't whitewash it. They didn't pretend like it didn't happen. But yeah, they mourned with this great hope. One commentator writes this way, we place the dead body in a box as a testimony to our faith and theirs of an exodus yet to come, where the final trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. Scripture tells us Jesus is coming back. Scripture tells us that he is going to, to make this world anew. He will totally burn up all that is evil and wicked about it, all, all that is fallen and broken and damaged and decayed and destroyed. That he will make it new and he will place your physical bodies, the same sort of glorious resurrection body that Christ has even now on the right hand of the Father. He will clothe you with that same resurrection life. 
that he will give you life, not, not merely in, in a few square miles on the other side of the world. He'll give you life in all the new heavens and the new earth. That's why you got to keep these things together. This, this body, this, this coffin that was carted off and the tomb in which it was placed. I mean, I mean, to have life in the promised land but no physical bodies would be awful. Scripture doesn't tell us that in eternity will be these sort of spirits floating around somewhere. Oh, it says we'll have bodies. But, but to have only the bodies and, and no physical place in which to live would be, would be ridiculous. <laughs> We'd be just stuck here. No, nowhere to go. Nowhere to serve the Lord and to worship Him for all eternity. But Scripture ties both of those together. It says we will have eternal life and eternal land. I don't know what, what, what physical travails you're going through now. I don't know what, what, what pains this life is giving you. I know we've all lost loved ones. We all know that we've lost those who have confessed faith in Christ, have looked to him for the forgiveness of their sins, long for the eternal life that he was in the process of bringing but yet still died. The scripture says people in that condition haven't, haven't lost their hope, haven't lost that for which Christ died and provided them. So said, we're, we're waiting. And in the meantime, though, we, we know that God is doing something. And that, that's our third point this morning. There's this, this middle part of the text that I skipped over, verses 15 to 21. In these verses, Joseph's brothers, they, they see that their father is dead and they're worried because they think, well, we've been reconciled to our brother. You surely remember what they did to Joseph, right? How, how, they, how they threw him into a pit and were going to kill him. But then they said, oh, we can make some money off the kid. Let's sell him to the slave traders and go pretend that he's dead to our father. Eventually, through the Lord's miraculous working, they were reconciled. But, but there's still this little fear in the back of their heads. Okay, now that dad's dead, maybe our now more powerful younger brother is going to really, you know, get back at us. And it, it's, Joseph so can't believe that they would think that, that he, that he cries. He's like, really? <laughs> he says. And maybe we have that same anguish, you know, that, 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 that maybe there is still, you know, something that God's going to get me for. You know, that maybe evil will still win out. That maybe I, I'm wasting my time. They, they, they fear what's to come based on their sin. But Joseph comes to them with the deepest of reassurances. You read that in verses 19 and 20. He says, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? I'm not, I'm not the judge. He says, as for you all, you meant evil against me. He doesn't deny the wickedness of their actions. He doesn't deny even the, 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 the responsibility that they have and the, the possibility they should be judged for their sin. He says, it's not my place. I'm not God. Yeah, yeah you meant evil against me. Yeah, yeah, there is evil in this world. But, but God meant it for good. 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, as wicked as you have been, as much evil as there is in this world, God is still in control. God meant it for good. The the one who has promised you this eternal life in an eternal, physical, glorious body for all eternity is strong enough, is powerful enough to bring that hope to fruition, to bring it to reality, to make it happen. And I love how Joseph puts it. He says, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. God meant your evil for good. Notice what Joseph doesn't say. Joseph doesn't say, you meant evil for me and God had to figure out how to turn it you know, into good. He doesn't say, you meant evil for me and God saw the mess that you made and says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? And you know, kind of, kind of put you know, his, his thinking cap on and came up with this solution. He said, oh wait, maybe this will work. God's not some cosmic janitor who sees a mess in the hallway. He's like, oh, I gotta get get up my mop and see if I can somehow, you know, get this floor back to how it used to be. No. Joseph says God meant it for good. It's been his plan all along. This isn't some, you know, plan 2.0 of God. We aren't in plan B or C or D or E. Your life is exactly in the middle of God's good plan for life. God meant it that many would be alive as they are today. Friends, your hope is secure because your God is all-powerful, almighty, all-wise, all-good, all-concerned with the, with the eternal life of his people. God does not work despite the evil in the world, as if it's just as strong as he and he's going to have to make sure he gets the last word. No, no, God, God is in control right through the evil. He, he doesn't play in it for evil purposes, and he, gain, he gains no, no evil uh, fruit from it. He, he cannot be uh, charged with any evil because his intentions and his results are only good. But that doesn't mean that evil is outside his grasp. Yes, they meant it for evil. Yes, our enemies. Yes, those who stab us in the back. Yes, those who betray us and those who who abuse us. They they mean it for evil. They will be judged for that. Don't think that means that, that God is somehow absent. That God is not somehow working. That God is not somehow good. Because he is. If that's true in the Old Testament, the, the physical salvation of these 70 offspring of Abraham and Sarah, when we, come, when we come to the New Covenant, to the New Testament, to the eternal spiritual descendants of Adam and Eve, which now number the billions in history and around the world, that fact is still true. For what, what does the Apostle Peter say to the people in Jerusalem on, on the day of Pentecost. When, when he preaches about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says the most remarkable of things in Acts chapter 2. Let me turn there. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, 
this Jesus, he's been preaching about Jesus. He says Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, yes, you meant evil against Jesus. <laughs> he, was, he was killed lawlessly. He, he was murdered. He was judged unjustly. The, the death of your Savior was a travesty. It was a shame. It was, it was in one sense, a judicial disaster. Uh, the one man in world history who didn't deserve any sort of penalty received the worst of all penalties. But what does Peter say? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of the, the holy and righteous one was part of God's perfect plan for your eternal good. That Jesus would come and die for your sins was exactly what God intended. Friends, you see why your faith and your hope are secure. Because you have a God who has planned all things for your salvation, for your eternal hope, for your life in that promised land. That, that's the only way that we can be sure that there will be no sin. That we can know that we will have perfect glorified bodies because Christ died, as Peter just said, died for those sins if you will merely believe in him. And he rose to eternal life that you may have it too. Your hope is secure. Your lottery numbers may never come in. The, your favorite boxer may never win the world heavyweight belt. You may never get that dream job or that, or that dream spouse or that dream car or that dream vacation home. I know I certainly won't, at least the latter of those. My job's pretty good. My wife's great. I stopped playing lottery a long time ago. Because I know that I have a future that is secure. I know that even as my body gets old and decays and my memory goes to mush, that, that I have an eternal hope in the promised land. That although I, I sin, that I continue to sin, and people continue to sin against me, that Christ died for those sins. I really look to him in faith, relying on what he has done for me. And I know that I have eternity in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. Not merely a cave, not merely a coffin, not merely a field in Israel, but the glorious resurrection of this world as the glorious resurrected Christ comes to plant his resurrected people in that place. Please, would that be your hope? Would it be your confidence? Would it be that what you hold on to as you, as you walk through the rest of your lives? whatever the Lord has for you in his good plan in the days to come. Let us pray. Father God, what hope you give us in your word. You have surely planned all things good for not only your glory, but, but part, of that, part of your glorious revelation to us of our good, of our salvation, of our eternal life. Lord, may this, may this hope uh, fill us with, with this light that cannot be extinguished. May, may those who see us uh, know that there's something different about us, that we don't, we don't put our, our, our hope, our stock in the things of this world that, that tarnish and fade. 
But our hope is in Christ and what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do for us and what he has promised to do for us for all eternity. So we ask this in his name. Amen.